As I mentioned, we're continuing in our series on the Ten Commandments this morning. And we need to know that we're actually at a transition point in the Ten Commandments. Theologians have long broken up the Ten Commandments into two categories. The first four commandments pertain to our love toward God primarily. And then the last six pertain to our love towards fellow man. So... The first four theologians call the first table of the law. And the last six theologians call the second table of the law. And so we've actually finished the first table of the law. We did the last four weeks, the first four commandments. And now we're beginning the last six commandments of the Ten Commandments. So now we're shifting away primarily from our love toward God, toward our love toward our neighbors. Now obviously these lines are not hard and fast and cut and dry because... You can't love God, the Apostle John tells us, if you don't love your brother whom you've seen. And likewise, loving people properly involves, necessitates loving God also. So these lines are not hard and fast, but it's helpful categories for us to think in. Because Jesus himself said that the whole law can be summed up in these two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. So all that God expects from us, really at the end of the day, is that we love Him and that we love the people around us. That's it. But because love can be a very subjective thing, what does it actually look like to love? What does it mean to love? One person may perceive the loving thing to do as this or that, while another person might think that the loving thing to do is something else altogether. So God has not left us with this nebulous command simply to love. But He has delineated for us in the Scriptures what love looks like. And so the Ten Commandments help us understand the first four, particularly, what love toward God looks like. And the last six, what love towards our fellow man looks like. So we're beginning the second table of the law today. Beginning our section on love for neighbor. And this morning we're looking at Exodus chapter 20 and verse 12 which says, Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Honor your father and your mother. We need to understand this as being more than just literally honor your biological father and your biological mother. Because Jesus teaches us in Matthew chapter 5 that the commandments apply much more broadly than simply just the most extreme and literal and outward application of it. So Jesus taught us in Matthew chapter 5 that not only have you broken the commandment to murder if you actually go stab someone or shoot someone, but that even if you have been unjustly angry with somebody in your heart, that you have actually sinned in that same category as murder. Jesus taught us that adultery is not merely hopping into bed with somebody that you're not married to, but even a lustful look is considered a breach of the commandment against adultery. And so when we understand that these are basically giving us categories of sin, these Ten Commandments are giving us categories of sin, we need to understand that honor your father and your mother is... Speaking of more than just the honoring of your biological father and mother, but it's speaking of 
honoring the hierarchies of authority that God has woven into this world. Now there's all kinds of hierarchies of authority that we could get into, but really there are three basic ones, three main ones. There are parents and children, which is what is explicitly dealt with in this commandment. Then there is government and citizens. And then there is church leaders and the members of the church. And those are the big three that we could talk about. Now we need to understand, as I say, a hierarchy of authority, that we're not talking about a hierarchy of value or a hierarchy of personhood, as if parents are inherently more valuable than their children, or pastors are inherently more valuable than church members, or government officials are inherently more valuable than the citizens. That's not at all what we're saying. But what we are saying is that there are hierarchies of authority that are in this world that are not products of time and chance, but are actually part of God's design for the way the world works. And so we need to respect and honor those authority structures and the people that fill those positions. Those in authority are to be shown honor commensurate with their roles. So what is honor? I think it might be helpful to come at this from the opposite end. What is dishonor? I think we're, we can get that a little bit more intuitively. We all, I think, have a sense when somebody is being dishonored. To dishonor someone could involve speaking badly about them, either to their face or behind their back, with the intention to make them feel smaller or less important. So if I came to you and I said, hey, do you mind if I speak to you for a moment? I'd like to talk to you about something that I overheard you say yesterday, and it's actually not factually correct, and so I just wanted to just touch base with you and have a conversation about that. We, we all kind of have an understanding that that's not dishonoring. But if I come to you and I say, I heard what you said yesterday, you idiot, that is obviously dishonoring. So it's not about disagreeing with people or voicing disapproval, but it is about the manner in which we bring things across. And so when we speak badly about someone in a way that is intended to make them appear smaller or less significant, I think we all have an intuitive sense that that's dishonoring that person. Or dishonor could involve disregard for someone's desires and wishes. Again, acting as if they're small or unimportant. So let's imagine that there's a husband and a wife and the wife goes into labor and the husband panics and throws his wife in the car and starts speeding down to the hospital. And the police see this car flying by and put the sirens on. And the man is stressing because he wants to do what the police want him to do, but at the same time he has this competing thing, right? So he gets his wife to the hospital, the police show up and say, why didn't you stop? And he says, well, my wife was in labor, I panicked, I thought I should do this. I think we can understand that that's not really dishonoring the police. Whereas, let's say that somebody is just 
out driving around, just having fun, and has some buddies in the car, and the police see them going too fast and turn on their lights, and then he turns, the driver turns to his friends and says, hey, watch this, and runs from the police. We understand that that's dishonor as well, because it's a disregard for this person's desire or wishes. So, just to give a few more examples of this, a child who says of his father, my father's a joke, he doesn't know anything and can't do anything right. Obviously that's dishonor because it's that speaking badly with the intention to make appear smaller. Or a citizen who says good riddance when a party is overwhelmingly voted out. Or a church member who says, I like it when my pastor preaches because then I can catch up on my sleep. Right? These are all examples of dishonor. A child continuing to play on the floor after his mother has told him to clean up his toys. A citizen flaunting the law and brazenly doing what is prohibited. A church member completely ignoring the counsel of his pastor. These are all examples of dishonor. So then when we think about honor, we can kind of think about the opposite. It doesn't necessarily mean like a mindless obedience. It doesn't necessarily mean agreement with everything that happens or everything that is said. But there is this disposition to speak as well as you can of somebody without that desire to make them appear smaller or less important. And there's that desire to regard their commands or their wishes. If disagreement happens, it happens within that context of honor. So a small child shows honor through obedience and respectful words. An adult son or daughter living independently need not obey his parents, more on that later, but still ought to take his parents' desires or wishes into consideration. A citizen may disagree with her government and use lawful means to counter her government's ideology, policies, and legislation, but should still speak as well as possible about the government and obey in the meantime everything she can without violating the law of God. And a church member doesn't need to yield unswerving, unquestioning obedience to his pastors and deacons in every respect but respect for his pastor's counsel and obedience wherever possible in the Christian life and submission to the deacons in the exercise of their role without violating the law of God, of course, is part and parcel of healthy, authority-honoring church life. So, the commandment is honor your father and mother. Understood in its broad sense, as the commandments are supposed to be, we must realize that this means that we should embrace and support God-ordained authority dynamics. We should embrace and support God-ordained authority dynamics, as well as the people that fill those positions of authority. So here are three reasons why we should, making application to our lives as we go. First is it is commanded by God. This really just actually ought to settle it. My sons are at the stage where I tell them to do something and the question is, why? 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 And sometimes it's just a very sincere question and they're just learning about the world so I just take time to explain it to them. But part of, 
learning to obey God and moving forward in maturity in the Christian life is not necessarily to stop asking why. It's okay to try to understand God's purposes and God's mind. But at the same time, learning that why is secondary and subsidiary. If God has said it, just do it. He's God. So the first reason why we should embrace and support God-ordained authority dynamics is because God says so. Honor your father and your mother. So children, honor your parents. Dependent children, obey your parents. Certainly if you are a small child under the age of majority, you need to obey your parents. But this would also include those living at home who are still fully or partially dependent on their parents. To the extent that you're still dependent, there still is an authority dynamic that ought to be there. You, you ought not to leave the house, for example, in a huff and say, whatever, Dad, I'm not listening to you, and then drive off in his car. <laughs> right? So if you're still at home, you just have to recognize the fact that if you're still at home and you're still partially dependent, there ought to be that measure of actual obedience. If you want to move out, you're a grown adult, move out. Become an independent adult. So dependent children, obey your parents. Independent adult children, you need to still honor your parents. So the dynamic shouldn't be, well, I'm no longer living in your household, dependent on you, under your authority, Therefore, I disregard whatever you have to say. You have no involvement or no say in my life whatsoever anymore. This ought not to be the attitude. We don't need to be reactionary about this. So again, remember I said at the beginning that honoring doesn't necessarily mean blind obedience or never disagreeing. You're free, especially in the context of an independent child with their parent, you're free to not obey at the end of the day. But you're not free to dishonor. So you need to figure out how to honor your parents. And again, this would involve things like speaking as well of your parents as you can. That doesn't mean that you never express disagreement with them. It doesn't mean that you never express disapproval of what they do. It doesn't mean that even perhaps with your close friends or whatever, you don't talk about perhaps their shortcomings and the struggles that you're having in dealing with your parents, these things can be appropriate things as you're trying to figure out how to honor your parents. But what you need to do is not take the opportunity to knock your parents down a couple notches in your friend's eyes. So the difference between this, you go to a friend and you talk to them and you say, hey, I'm having a really hard day. I was talking to my dad and he just was very rude and inconsiderate towards me, said some things that were very hurtful and this is a pattern as I deal with him. And it's, it's really frustrating for me, it's really difficult for me. It makes me feel like I don't want to go home and visit my parents. It makes me feel like I want to avoid them. But I know the scripture says that I need to honor my parents and I want to do that. Can, can we pray together about that? You understand, in a situation like that, you're revealing something negative about your parents 
but that's miles away from showing up to your friend's house and your friend's like, how are you doing? You're like, oh, terrible. My dad's a jerk and I, I hate him and I don't ever want to go back there. You understand the difference between those things. The first situation is honoring. The second situation is dishonoring. Also, consider their preferences and desires and take counsel from them from time to time. Believe it or not, your parents actually do know quite a lot. The Mark Twain, the American novelist, said, It's amazing how much my parents learned while I was making my way from age 18 to age 30. And obviously the implicit sarcasm in there is that it was actually Mark Twain that grew and came to understand that his parents were actually wiser by the time he reached 30. He could see that more clearly than he could at age 18. So it's good and it's wise and it's prudent to sincerely take counsel from your parents, to seek out what they have to say. You may not see eye to eye about everything, but seek out their counsel, seek out their input. That's a way of showing honor. You may not agree at the end of the day, but you can back and forth with your parents a little bit, look at it from a couple of different angles. Just thank them sincerely for their input and make what decision you gotta make as a grown adult. Right? But you've shown honor to your parents in the process. There may also be times where you may do something that is not necessarily the way that you would prefer to do it, simply out of regard for your parents' preferences. Again, strictly speaking, you don't have to do that, but that can be a way of showing honor to your parents. If your parents feel strongly about a certain issue, you don't feel as strongly about that issue, that may be a situation where you can take it as an opportunity to, to do what the Bible says and say, hey, this is a great opportunity for me to show honor to my parents and you can defer to them in that situation even though strictly speaking you don't have to so independent children you don't need to obey your parents but you still do need to honor your parents as you make your way through adulthood now parents you should realize that the scripture commands your children to honor you and as we've just seen, the scripture implicitly commands your parents and explicitly in other places, or pardon me, commands your children explicitly in other places to honor also the government, to honor also church leaders. So you need to also train your children up in the way they should go. My children are back here at the moment in the wiggle room, but as I read this, I shouldn't only think what does this have to do with me and my parents? But I should also think as I read this, what does this have to do with my sons and me? And training up your child in the way they should go means helping them understand from, from young that they need to embrace and honor God-ordained authority structures and the people that fill those roles. So we need to require obedience from our children and we need to require that they show adequate respect to us, to government officials, to school teachers, to police officers, etc., etc., to church leaders even. Now, as we think about this, we also need to be gracious with our children. The scripture says that God knows our frame, 
He remembers that we are dust. We might make some progress in the Christian life, advance in our careers, think that we're really something. But at the end of the day, God stoops low to deal with us. God is not really impressed with even our best days, strictly speaking. God may be pleased with us, but He's pleased with us the way that we're pleased when our little children draw us pictures. We don't think that it's actually that amazing in and of itself, but we love our children and we accept them because they are our children and we're pleased with them because they are our children. This is something like what our obedience is like in God's eyes. God isn't, doesn't look down at us, even on our best days, and be like, wow, He's so amazing. She is so obedient. What an incredible Christian. That's not really how it works. But God is like, she's walking a little more steady than she did last year. And I'm pleased to see that progress in my daughter. That's a lot more like how it works. And so, if God does that with us, and we need to recognize that there's a big chasm or a big gap between grown-up Christians and God, we need to understand that the chasm between us and our children is actually quite a bit smaller. So we might feel like, why can't my two-year-old get this? Why can't my six-year-old get this? But we need to understand that the gap between us and our six-year-old or our ten-year-old or our one-year-old is much smaller than the gap between God and us. And we look and we see how God deals so patiently with His children. So graciously with His children. Yes, He's firm. Yes, He disciplines. Yes, He will do things to us that we don't like, that make us uncomfortable. But He loves us. He's working with benevolence. And He doesn't mete out strict justice to His children. He doesn't treat us as our iniquities deserve, as the Scripture says. If God treated me today as my iniquities deserve, He would strike me dead right now and put me in hell. So every day that I get to enjoy the blessings of this life, friends, family, good food, worship with you all, all of the wonderful things that go on in life, God is dealing patiently with me. He's forbearing with my sin, dealing more kindly with me than my sins deserve. And He does this with me every day. We likewise ought to do this with our children, even as we want to teach them to respect authority, even as we want to teach them to honor their father and mother, the government, church leaders. We got to try to deal with them in a manner that is consistent with the way that God deals with us. I've said it before, but I'll say it again because I think it's a helpful paradigm. Our homes should feel more like the covenant of grace than the covenant of works. You'll recall that Adam and Eve were in the garden in the beginning, placed under the covenant of works. So the covenant of works was based on strict justice. If Adam obeyed, he would attain a reward because of his obedience. If he disobeyed, he would suffer, he would, he would receive a curse placed upon him. In fact, what happened is that Adam disobeyed, and so God dealt justly with Adam. And he put himself and his posterity, which includes us, under a curse. So we are spiritually dead by nature. 
dead in our trespasses and sins, and we're on our way to hell unless God should intervene. That is just. That is strict justice. The covenant of grace is where God has reconciled us to Himself through Christ Jesus, made us His sons and daughters, and because we are His sons and daughters, accepted in Christ Jesus, and that relationship is secure, God is not dealing with us on the basis of strict justice as pertains to our own obedience or disobedience. So day by day, I'm not trying to earn my sonship with God. I'm not trying to to maintain my status as a son. I'm not trying to maintain my status as reconciled to God, loved by God, etc., etc. Those things are secure. And so He disciplines me and He trains me within the context of that love and that security. So Adam could put himself under a curse, could be severed from God by his disobedience because he was under the covenant of works. I cannot sever myself from God or come out from under his love because I'm in the covenant of grace. So as we think about parenting our kids, do our kids feel like, this is what I'm just talking about. It's not, I'm not saying your kids are actually under one or under the other dependent upon your parenting style. But what I'm saying is, do kids feel like one wrong move and they're cut off from your love? Do your kids feel like they're on probation on the condition of perfect and perpetual obedience? And if they meet the standards, they will attain the reward of your love and a good relationship with you. But if they fail, they will be cut off from you. Do they feel like that? If they feel like that, your home feels like the covenant of works. But on the other hand, do your kids feel secure in your love? Do they generally have a sense of your pleasure and your delight in them? Do your children feel like, as God says of His people Israel in the Scriptures, underneath are the everlasting arms? Do your children feel like underneath them, so to speak, are caring, loving, protecting, providing arms? Do they feel like, yes, my parents care about my obedience. They care about my growth. They care about making me be the kind of person that I should be and training me up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. But they do all this in the context of committed love, in the context of warmth and kindness and so on and so forth. If that's the way your kids feel, your home feels more like the covenant of grace. So I find that a helpful paradigm in thinking through Parenting, and so I share it with you because I think it might be for you also. So, children, little children, obey your parents. That's a way of showing honor. Or dependent children, even obey your parents. Independent children, you don't need to obey, but you do need to honor. And then, parents, think about training up your children to obey not only you, but also, or pardon me, to honor not only you, but also the government, church leaders, school teachers whoever the case may be. Now, coming to think outside of the family about other human institutions, can you honor the government, for example, while flaunting the laws of the land? No, you can't. Can you, can you honor the government while saying, I'm going to cheat on my taxes? 
can you honor the government while disregarding other laws of the land? No, you can't. Which means that part of the way that we show honor to the government is by obedience. We need to obey insofar as possible. And you might say, well, a good government would deserve my obedience. But, you know, I don't agree with the government here or there. This is not right or that's not right. 1 Peter 2.17 says, honor the emperor. You know who the emperor was? Caesar. In case you are not well-versed in ancient Roman history or church history, the Roman Empire was not particularly friendly to Christians throughout the first century. And I'll leave you to do your own Google searches and find out the details of what I mean. But the emperor was far from the friend of Christians. And yet the command in Scripture is honor the emperor. And so we need to figure out as Christians, what does it look like to show honor to the government of Barbados? Obviously we're not under Caesar, but we are under this particular form of government, and so the principle is transferable. We need to figure out how to show honor. And that means at least obedience insofar as is possible without violating the laws of God. So there are laws in some countries in the world that you could not keep while also obeying God's law. If that were the case, you obey God's law and you disobey the laws of the land. But insofar as possible, you need to try to obey the laws of the land. That's part of honoring the government. And then in the church, Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. These are not only inferences from the fifth commandment, but they're spelled out explicitly in Scripture, which confirms that we're not wandering way beyond what the fifth commandment entails. As we look and we do see these things delineated elsewhere in Scripture. Again, this doesn't mean that you are to obey pastors or deacons of the church in sin. If I or any other church leader told you to do something that was sinful, you should not do it. You should disobey and you should make other people aware of it so that the church leaders can be dealt with appropriately. This also doesn't mean, as pertaining to pastors and deacons, in the minutia of everyday life beyond what is warranted. Some, some pastors get behind a pulpit and they think that they have warrant to just go and tell you everything about every little aspect of your life. But that's not, that's not what the job of a pastor is to do. My, I have a sphere of authority. I'm not, I'm not your sovereign lord and ruler. The, as we saying earlier, oh Father, you are sovereign. That's God. I'm not sovereign. And neither will any other pastor or any deacon or anyone that steps up to preach here or speaks to you privately or whatever. We are not your sovereign lord. There are limits to our sphere of authority. So when, when the scripture says obey your leaders and submit to them, this isn't like what color shirt you should wear, you know, what kind of car you should buy, these sorts of things. But sometimes authoritarianism in the church is a real problem. And so I think conversations would need to be had if a situation like that ever arose, God forbid, in this church or any other church that you might attend, conversations like that would need to be had. 
Now, honor means that those conversations need to be had in a respectful way. As I was talking earlier about the contrast between dishonor and honor, you can kind of come at the same substance of conversation in a dishonoring way or in an honoring way. So even where disobedience happens, right, where, where a Christian might, for conscience sake, disobey the government because the government is telling them to do something that's sinful, or even where a church member might disobey a pastor because a pastor has no legitimate authority to speak into that situation, conversations need to happen in an honoring way. So this is what the commandment is telling us, and the first reason for obeying it is simply because it's commanded by God. We should be able to just accept that as Christians. This is what God says. Even if I don't understand it, this is what I should do. But let's go on to look at two more reasons why we should obey this commandment to honor your father and your mother. Secondly, in most cases, it's natural. In most cases, it's natural. What I mean is this. Nobody follows a dishonored leader. And organizations need leaders. So preserve the honor of your leaders. Let me state it with a metaphor or an illustration. Only a fool would try to cut off his own head. So how is a family going to function without leaders? How is a a more complex society like a country going to function without leaders? How can a church function without leaders? We understand that leaders are necessary in these different spheres. So if you dishonor your leaders, you're like someone that's trying to cut off their own head. If the head is sick, you don't cut it off. You try to tend the wound. Likewise, if there's sickness at the leadership level, you try to address it rather than cut off the head. So that's why I say in most cases, it's natural. Understanding that we need leaders, so let's respect our leaders and honor our leaders and try to help them do their job. Try to make it easy for them to do their job. It's natural also in this way. Good leaders serve you. Good leaders benefit you. When you have good people in government, the country thrives. When you have good parents, the family thrives. When you have good pastors and deacons, the church thrives. Good leaders serve you. So repay that service with honor. Nobody is perfect. Obviously, you're not going to have a perfect pastor or deacons. You're not going to have perfect government. You're not going to have perfect parents. But recognize, by and large, if you grew up in a good family and now you're an independent adult child, recognize that your parents were a big help to you. To to understate the case. You literally would have died if your parents didn't take care of you. There was a point where you were literally helpless. And your parents gave you warm, safe place to live, food that you needed, nutrition, etc., etc., affection, care. Repay that with honor. So it's natural in that sense. And I'm not going to belabor this point because I think we can all understand that. 
That's the second reason. First is that God commands it. The second is that it's natural. But this argument doesn't hold when leaders have been bad. So I say in most cases it's natural. Or in many cases it's natural. Sometimes it's very, very hard to honor leaders. What if you live, for example, in Venezuela? Right? Or even, even in Canada, let's be honest. Because there's a lot of ungodly things going on at the governmental level in Canada. What does it look like to honor your leaders, honor your government? What does it look like to honor your parents, for example, if they've been abusive? What does that look like? What does it look like when you've been burned by ungodly and unhealthy leadership in the church in whatever way? Pastors uh, swindling the congregations, getting rich, off of, out of the offering plate or something like this or whatever the case may be, right? Or we, all, we can all think of lots of scandals and sins that have happened in the church. What does it look like then to honor your parents or honor church leaders or honor government when they're not good? Well, the first thing is, again, we can revert back to God commanded it. Which as Christians ought to, as I said, settle the issue. We still need to figure out how to show honor even in those situations. Now that doesn't mean, again, that we don't talk about shortcomings, failings, sins. It doesn't mean that we don't confront. It doesn't mean that we don't address the issues. It doesn't mean that we just silently go along with whatever sinful things are happening or so on and so forth. Honor often entails obedience but honor doesn't always entail obedience and sometimes it's the right thing to do is to disobey but you can still disobey in an honoring way and seek the proper resolution to these situations put if you're in danger put distance between yourself and the person who is endangering you if you've been deceived and taken advantage of financially, well, stop giving to that ministry, right? All of these kinds of things. But we still need to figure out, or same thing with the government, right? Be wise if you, if you know that the government tends to operate unfairly in a certain way. Be wise and you don't have to try to just walk in naively and let yourself be taken advantage of illegally. For example, if you're under a corrupt government or something like that. So you're free to take all those measures, of course. But we still need to try to figure out, what does it look like for me to honor a bad government? What does it look like for me to honor bad parents? What does it look like for me to honor bad church leaders? What does this look like? So revert to God commanded it. And also... And this brings us to the third principle, or the third reason for doing this, is good practice for relating to God Himself. Think about this. God is in authority over us and has a rightful claim upon our lives. We should have recognized and honored Him as God. 
God is in authority and has a rightful claim over our lives, we should have recognized and honored Him as God. But Romans chapter 1 and verse 21 says this, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God. So, what we see is that though God is in authority and has a rightful claim over our lives, we've not honored Him and honored His rightful claim on our lives. The Scripture tells us, all of us, Christians and non-Christians alike, that in a sense, He is our Father. The Scripture talks in some places, in a different sense, about God being the Father only of those who believe in Christ Jesus. But in Acts chapter 7, verses 28 and 29, it talks about all of us being His children in this way. It says, we are His offspring. What that means is simply that He created us. As we sang at the beginning of the service, without our aid, He did us make. We came from Him. He, so to speak, gave birth to us. And thus He is our Father. He is our King. Psalm 95 and verse 3 says, The Lord is a great God and a great King. He is a shepherd, which is synonymous actually with pastor. Pastor just means shepherd, by the way. 1 Peter 5.4 calls Christ Jesus the chief shepherd. So God is our Father, God is our King, and God is our shepherd or pastor. He has, therefore, authority and a rightful claim upon our lives. We should have recognized and honored Him and honored that rightful claim that He has upon our lives. But what did we do to our shepherd? All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. What did we do to Him as Father? We were like rebellious sons. What did we do to Him as King? We were like treasonous citizens. We did not honor God's rightful claim upon our lives, but we went our own way. We disobeyed. We broke His law. This is what we all did. Everyone. Christians and non-Christians alike. We broke God's law. We did not honor Him. So we broke the fifth commandment even with respect to God before we even get to any other human beings. We broke all nine of the other commandments. We did not love God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. We did not love our neighbor as ourselves. We utterly made a mess of obedience. We we broke God's law, and not just a little bit, a lot. The gospel, the good news is this. Getting rightly related to God after having dishonored Him doesn't happen by honoring Him enough now or honoring Him thoroughly enough now. 
or honoring Him sincerely enough now. That's good news. You might think to yourself, well, how is that good news? Because what can I, what can I do if, if that's not good enough, which it's not, no matter how hard you try to honor God, no matter how sincerely you resolve to honor Him from this day forward, you can never get things right with Him by stopping the dishonor and resuming or starting the honor. You can never get things right. You know why? Because God's standard is not good enough. God's standard is perfection. But the good news is that though you can't get there, you can't get reconciled to God based on your own performance, your own resolve, your own transformation. The good news is this. Christ Jesus came into the world to live as a substitute for sinners. And while Christ Jesus walked on this earth, He obeyed those whom He should have obeyed as part of showing honor to those whom He should have showed honor to. Even when He confronted the Pharisees, even when He confronted Pilate, even when He did not do what other people wanted Him to do, He honored everybody that He owed honor to. And He did that as a substitute for all who will trust in Him, all who will believe in Him. So though your obedience is down here, subpar, Christ's obedience meets the standard. And though you deserve to die, actually. Remember I said earlier that if God dealt with me on the basis of strict justice, He would strike me dead and send me to hell. If God dealt with you on the basis of strict justice today, He would strike you dead and send you to hell. That's what we all deserve. He would pour out His wrath upon you for breaking His law. But what Christ Jesus came to do was not only meet the standard that we didn't meet on our behalf, but His death on the cross was taking the punishment that we deserved for our sin on our behalf. So when we trust in Christ Jesus and we say, I can't do it. I can't save myself. But I'm going to put my trust in Jesus that because of His obedience, God will count me as righteous. He will give me Christ's obedience like clothes to wear to cover up my disobedience. And I'm going to trust that when Christ Jesus died on the cross and bore the wrath of God for sin, that because of that, He bore my wrath, and therefore I don't need to bear wrath for my own sin. I'm going to stop then trusting in myself and my own obedience. I'm going to stop trying to work off my own debt. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to trust Jesus to take care of the demands of the law, both what the law requires of me and what the law, should, what the law does in condemning me for failing to do what the law requires. I'm going to trust what Jesus has done with respect to the law as opposed to what I have done with respect to the law. And when we do that, God forgives us for our sin. We are reconciled to Him. We become His sons and daughters in that more specific sense that I mentioned earlier. We are saved from our sin. This is what it means when Christians talk about getting saved. It means that they were under the wrath of God before, but now that they've trusted in Christ Jesus, Christ has borne the wrath that they deserved for them. 
And so now they're no longer under the wrath. We are saved from our sin. We're reconciled to God. We're put in His family. We're forgiven. The Bible uses a big word to describe this. It's called justification. Being justified. It means reconciled to God and accounted as righteous. Everything's cool between us and God now. That's what justification is. But here's the thing. The gospel, God in the gospel is not only justifying us, not only forgiving us for our sin and reconciling us to Him, but God is also changing us and helping us obey Him. Helping us become the kind of people that He wants us to be. So now we come back to what I said a few minutes ago. Honoring, figuring out how to honor parents who have been bad parents, figuring out how to honor governments that have been bad governments, figuring out how to honor church leaders that have been bad church leaders, all of these are good practice for learning to relate to God Himself. Not because God is a bad parent, not because God is a bad king, not because God is a bad pastor. But if we, if we go and we practice, even in this bad situation, to show honor to parents, to show honor to kings, to show honor to pastors who have not been good parents, kings, and pastors, then it becomes easier and easier for us to show honor to the one to whom all honor is due. If you see a sports team... At practice, everybody's walking around so slowly, maybe jogging here and there, making mediocre efforts toward the ball. You can bet when game day comes, they're not going to do very well in that situation. But when they train hard in the practice and struggle and do the work even when it's real hard in practice, then it becomes easier in the situation that really matters. In fact, the best teams would tell you, anyone on the team would tell you that their practices are harder than their games. Because good teams practice at this level even when they know they only need to play at this level to win. And so, showing honor even to bad parents, bad kings, bad pastors is good practice for showing honor to God. It tests us. It it purifies the motives of our hearts as we have to wrestle through all of our sinful feelings. We're figuring out disentangling and disenmeshing. What is legitimate hesitation? What is legitimate self-protection that's just wise thinking? And then what is sinful here in my attitude towards these people? And learning to disentangle these things and work through can be purifying to our motives. And we practice showing honor. And then it becomes easy to show honor to the one who is a gracious and a kind and a benevolent father who spares no expense for his children. It becomes easier to show honor to the king who takes care of all of the citizens in his kingdom. It becomes easier to show honor to the chief shepherd who goes after all of the lost sheep and as the scripture tells us, carries the little lambs close to his chest. As we practice showing honor in all these other ways, it makes it easier to show honor to God who is deserving of all honor.
So God is an authority figure and we ought to give Him His due. We did not, and yet He atoned for our sins and reconciled us to Himself, those of us who are Christians. He's prepared to do that for any of you here this morning. Trust in Christ today. Be reconciled to God for Christ's sake. And receive the promise then that He will cleanse you. Not only forgive you, but make you the kind of person that you ought to be. Don't wait until you feel good enough for God, because you're never going to get there. And if you do get there where you feel good enough for God, you're sadly mistaken. What you need to do is actually start recognizing you are not and can never be good enough for God and just cry out to God, there's nothing I can do. I need Christ. Forgive me. And then begin this work of changing me. Begin this work of transforming me. That's what Christianity is and that's how it works. It's bad people who are forgiven by God while they're still bad for Christ's sake. And bad people whom God is now helping to become better people. Christianity is not people who have become good enough and now God accepts them. So God has offered pardon and offered cleansing in and through Christ Jesus to all who have dishonored Him and dishonored their fathers and mothers, kings, pastors, as well as all the other authority figures that they owed honor to, as well as broken any other commandment. God offers pardon and cleansing. And as the 1689 Confession of Faith with Jar Church holds to, as the 1689 Confession puts it, this doesn't decrease our obligation to obey God and honor Him, but rather strengthens it. If God has gone that extra mile to pardon and to cleanse us, it doesn't mean that we should show Him less honor, but it means that we should show Him all the more. So may we consider God as He is and as He has acted for us in the Gospel and give Him, as well as give all of those to whom He's commanded us to, the honor that they're due.